This podcast is produced by the ABA Journal. We bring you the latest legal news every day from around the web. Visit us online at abajournal.com. Thank you for joining us for the Modern Law Library podcast. I'm ABA Journal web producer Lee Rawls. Our guest here today is Lynn Povich, author of The Good Girls Revolt, How the Women of Newsweek Sued Their Bosses and Changed the Workplace. Lynn was a writer for Newsweek magazine in 1970 when she and more than 40 other women employees sued Newsweek for discrimination. It was the first time women in the media sued for equal rights and the first female class action suit. Lynn, can you tell us a little bit about the case and how you got involved in it? Yes. We had been uh, at Newsweek, a system where all the researchers and fact-checkers were women and all the reporters and writers were men. And that was just the way it had been since Henry Luce created Time in that segregated way, and Newsweek had copied that. But in the late 60s, as the women's movement was gaining steam and we were reading about uh, women's rights, one of our friends and researchers, Judy Gingold, had met with a woman lawyer who was a friend, and she was just describing our jobs at Newsweek when this woman said to her, you know that's illegal. Judy had no idea. This is 1969, so it's five years after the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And the woman said, well, call the Equal Employment Opportunities Commission, and Judy did. And this woman on the other line said, yes, that's illegal. You cannot segregate jobs by gender. And Judy said, well, you know, I don't think the men know about this. I think we should just tell them. And this woman said, are you crazy? People who have power don't want to give up power. If you do, if you tell them, they'll promote two people and they will co-opt you. You have such a clear case that you should sue. And so one by one, Judy started talking to her friends, and I was the fifth woman um, to be brought in. One thing I find really interesting about the book is how you describe uh, the way women looked at their jobs at, at that point in time. I mean, women had been able to go to college for you know, more than 50 years, but there weren't really jobs out there that would take advantage of their education. What kind of effect did that have on you guys? Well, we were in this uh, cusp generation. We were raised in the 40s and 50s, and most of us graduated in college in the early 60s to mid-60s. And so the colleges were very much part of the 50s um, culture of women. You know, they may be smart and they may want to get a job, but essentially their expectation was to get married and have children, and they would stop working when they did. So we had all been raised that way, but we happened to come of age in the mid-60s when the sexual revolution was happening, um, the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, and ultimately the women's movement. So we were just there to make this transition and realize that, you know, we wanted careers and we wanted to be treated equally and there was gender discrimination. And it benefited, many of us were able to make that transition and some of us were not. One of the women you talk about is Trish Riley, I believe. Yes. And she actually regretted. Um, yes, Trish is a really interesting case. She's the only, she was the first person in her family to go to college. She went to Berkeley. She was really bright and talented. And she had the opportunity after we sued to go to a bureau in Atlanta for an internship. And when they offered her a promotion to the reporter, she just couldn't do it. She said, you know, I just wanted to be a researcher. I just wanted to get married and have children. I, I was terrified. I, I just didn't really want to be promoted. And then she came back to New York. She did so well. They then offered her a job as a writer. And 
again, she refused to be promoted and ultimately left Newsweek because she really couldn't make that transition. She said, you know, I understood that men should be, women should be treated as equal to men, but I just, that was not for me. Another thing that's interesting about the book was how you talked about how, you know, even though these suits were ultimately successful, it wasn't a straight shot to the top for all the women who'd been involved in the suit. No, I mean, as you know, and most women who are involved in these kinds of suits, the women on the front lines um, don't benefit. They get frozen out, their careers stall, they get put in the backwater, and it's usually the next generation, the next group of women who benefit. Um, and that happened in most of these cases. Um, I was unusual. I had been a junior writer at the time that we sued, and I ultimately became the first woman senior editor, but that was very rare. Newsweek considered itself a progressive magazine and then argued for civil rights. How do you think the discrimination went unquestioned for so long? Well, as one of the writers, Peter Goldman, said, you know, we were all blind. I mean, the men were just blind. And, you know, this is how everyone was raised to think what a woman's role should be, and we all accepted it. And, um, you know, the the longer it went that way, the more people just assumed that's the way it was going to be. And to, And the women did, too, many of us until one day we didn't. And I think the the enormous social and cultural and political upheavals of the 60s really <clears throat> helped many of us challenge the way it was supposed to be. Oz Elliott uh, was a managing editor, is that correct? He was the editor of Newsweek, yes. He was the editor of Newsweek, and he went from being kind of an adversary to an advocate. Was that a common experience that you had with the men in charge? No. Oz, Oz, who had put, as you said, put Newsweek on the map for, for advocating for civil rights and the anti-war movement, and was very liberal and progressive. He also had three daughters, which I think may have helped. But he told me later that he realized right away that the women were right, and he was determined to make the changes. Unfortunately, he went over to the business side right after our lawsuit, and um, the editors who took over for him were not as convinced and committed to the women. Um, and so, actually, after the first lawsuit, very little happened. Um, there was very little progress. Very few women got hired. The women on the staff who tried out as writers, most of them failed. And we were really frustrated. And ultimately, in 1973, we sued again. Let's talk a little bit about the suits. There were two of them, and you had two lawyers with very different styles and backgrounds. Can you talk a little bit about them? Yes. Eleanor Holmes Norton was our first lawyer. She was then assistant legal director of the ACLU, and uh, she is a fiery, passionate person, as she is today as the representative from the District of Columbia. And she really took our case because she sort of grabbed – uh, the magazine out of our hands uh, when we went to meet her and said the fact that there are men from the very top category to the next to the last category and that there are only women at the bottom means there's a pattern of discrimination and I will take your case. Um, our second lawyer was Harriet Rabb, who is a brilliant young lawyer at Columbia Law School teaching an employment rights clinic in 1970. Two, when we first contacted her, the reason we didn't use Eleanor the second time was that she had been prom become the um, human rights commissioner for the city of New York and wasn't able to represent us. 
by this time, um, goals and timetables were getting used a lot in employment rights cases. And so Harriet came in with a very systematic approach. She took depositions from us in case we went to court. She quantified the nature of the discrimination, the patterns of discrimination, guys who had similar credentials but got promoted or better pay. And she demanded in our negotiations the second time goals and timetables so that she said she wanted one-third of all the writers and reporters to be women by the end of 1974, and very important, one-third of all the researchers to be men so that it would integrate that category so that it wasn't just a woman's job, it was an entry-level job. And the last demand she made of management was that there be a woman senior editor by the end of 1975. At first they balked because it was management, and we said we weren't going to sign an agreement where there wasn't a woman in the meetings where all the decisions were being made. And so in August of 1975, I, I was actually promoted to be the first woman senior editor at Newsweek. We had a story about sex discrimination, a sex discrimination case earlier in the week, and one commenter who um, has said in the past that she's, she's a woman commented and said that she looked down on anyone who filed a discrimination suit now because there was no more need for that. What what do you think the role of the EEOC and sex discrimination cases have today? Well, I definitely think there is still sex discrimination in the workplace. Um, cases are being filed all the time. Uh, legitimate cases are being filed all the time by women. And um, I think this idea that somehow we're past this, we're post-feminism, we're all equal now, it's a level playing field, it's, it's just not true. Certainly women have made enormous progress, and you see women certainly in middle and senior management in many, many companies and certainly in the media. But if you look at the top tier of executives, there are still very few women. But it's not just at the top. We still have unequal pay. Uh, we still have hostile workforce, uh, workplaces. We still have old boys um, networks and uh, old boys clubs uh, culture. Um, there was just this amazing study that was reported in the New York Times about scientists, women in science, and how just by changing the name from John to Jane, the, women's, uh, the women were offered less money and less position, even by women evaluators, and that it, there's something in the culture about being perceived as a woman that makes some people think we are less competent. A news story came out today that said that female editors-in-chief make $15,000 less than their male counterparts on average, which is, you know, $15,000. Yes. yes, and there was a story saying that MBAs and graduating male and female MBAs who graduate, the women make less than the men, even with the same credential. Yes, I think we're still going to wrestle with this problem for a while, a while yet. Would you mind reading us an excerpt of your book? No, I'd be happy to. I just, this, um, one of the things I want to say is that we, when Newsweek decided to write a cover story on the women's lib movement, as it was called in 1970, um, they didn't have a woman to write it. I was too junior, so they went outside for the first time in their history and hired a woman 
uh, a star writer at the New York Post to come in and freelance the story. And so we decided to sue on the day that Newsweek appeared on the newsstands with a cover story called Women in Revolt. Forty-six of us announced we were suing Newsweek for sex discrimination. So this is about that day and about our lawyer, Eleanor Holmes Norton. The story in the New York Daily News titled News Hens Sue Newsweek for Equal Rights began 46 women on the staff of Newsweek magazine, most of them young and most of them pretty, announced today they were suing the magazine. At 10 a.m., our lawyer, Eleanor Holmes Norton, the assistant legal director of the American Civil Liberties Union, began reading a statement to the PAC press conference. It's ironic, she said, waving a copy of the magazine, that while Newsweek considers women grievances newsworthy enough for major coverage, it continues to maintain a policy of discrimination against women on its staff. She pointed out that although the women were graduates of top colleges, held advanced degrees, and had published in major journals, quote, Newsweek's caste system relegates women with such credentials to research jobs almost exclusively and interminably. Many of us had been willing to go to court, but Eleanor still had to convince us. Over the months before we sued, we had begun meeting with Eleanor in the evenings in what became a six-week boot camp in power politics. It wasn't a case of me convincing you, she later said. I had to keep you telling you the truth. You were the creme de la creme. What the hell are you afraid of? You're smarter than these guys. They're taking advantage of you, and when the court sees your credentials, their eyes will pop out. Sitting in her apartment at 245 West 104th Street, Eleanor would cut and devour slices of raw onion, one of her pregnancy cravings, as she harangued us to screw up our courage. This is one of the great dictatorships in the history of the magazine, she would exclaim, and she was surprised by our naivete. You've got to take off your white gloves, lady. You've got to take off your white gloves, she would say. And at one point, fed up with us all, she yelled, You goddamn middle-class women, you think you can just go to daddy and ask for what you want? We were terrified of Eleanor, but there was a method to her madness. She had to shape us into a tough group. Quote, only one or two plaintiffs would have been very vulnerable at that early stage in a sex discrimination investigation, she later explained. They could lose their jobs even though there is a separate cause of action against retaliation. Or if they didn't lose their jobs, they're the ones who would be fingered and everyone else would get the benefit of what a couple of people did. Even though she thought we had a strong case, Eleanor was worried about the fight. If enough women came forward, then there would be protection against you all becoming fodder, she recalled. I didn't know if you would be fodder. I realized Newsweek was a liberal publication, so to speak. But when you go up against management, you go up against management. Thank you so much, Lynn. We really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you, Lynn. My pleasure. This podcast was brought to you by the ABA Journal. For more podcasts on the legal issues of the day, visit us online at abajournal.com or subscribe for free to the ABA Journal podcast on iTunes.